The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. You can join us live Saturday nights at 6 p.m., Sunday mornings at 9, 10.30, or 12, or you can join us online at cityrev.org. Amos 5, starting in verse 13. Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil, that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you. As you have said, hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. The Lord goes on to say, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Amos reveals to us the heart of God. God loves justice. He demands justice. He says to his people that he wants justice more than their assemblies, more than their music. So if we're going to be faithful to this text, any injustice in our city cannot be ignored. Justice should overflow out of us and throughout the land. There is no other entity in the history of the human race that is equipped for this task like the church. We have been scattered throughout the city with the presence of the living God, the Almighty, the maker of all that is living inside of us. We are armed with a single force that can breach any wall, mend any division, and reach the most hardened heart. We are armed with love, selfless, self-sacrificing love. We know this love because of our Savior Jesus. So what's the first step? How do we become catalysts for justice? Before we can advocate, we must empathize. And before we can possibly empathize, we must listen. Often the first step to healing is to just listen, to really hear and know another's experience. In this critical moment in our history, as a society, As a city and as a church, it's a time to listen. That's what families do. That's where we're going to start. Let's just talk about the you. Can we just just talk about the you? We can talk about the you, yes. I've got a bone to pick with you. Uh, We agreed that you would wear your ring to this interview, and you didn't. You didn't wear the ring. I'm not not happy about that. We'll have another moment. We'll have another (laughs) moment. Oh man, I I totally forgot. It was in the drawer too, man, and I. I totally forgot. I apologize. Let me start there. I apologize Thank for that. You. I forgive you. You did now. ask me that. I did agree to do that and charge it to my head, not my heart. And uh, I typically only wear it when I go speak to kids. And so no one coming. What are you trying no, to say about no, me, bro? No one coming to adults. It didn't even cross my mind again. You know, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm around grown men. I, you just called me a child. No, no, no. I said I wear it to speak to to, to you youth when I go to youth. When I, when I go speak to youth in teams, I wear it when adults. I don't, I don't really wear this it, so I'm camera, sorry. This is on camera, Daryl. You essentially said, I didn't think you would need to see that because you're a grown adult. <laughs> That's essentially what you just said to me. I, 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 I'm sorry. All right, tell me the 
you told me the story uh -huh. recently of, you know, going back to Friday Night Lights. Yeah, yeah. Of when you actually, you know, in real life that mm -hmm. happened where the school that's, uh, that is talked about in Friday Night Lights yeah. and you went and played them. And yeah. you said it was a very yeah. racially tense yeah. game. Yeah. Can you, yeah. Do you mind speaking about I, that? I, I don't. I don't. Um, and I, I say this not paint a picture. I don't want to paint a bad picture of that city, but I will share my, our experience there. You know, my junior year, we were number, I think we were like number three in the state. I think they were like number five in the state. Uh, so this was a big game. This was a big state game. And we had some boosters pay for us to fly. We chartered plane and we flew to Odessa, Texas to play Odessa Permian. Great football tradition, championships, um, gr great football program. And uh, this was a big deal, you know, in the state, um, going back to, you know, from the 80s and things like that. So we show up and um, our team was an entirely black football team and taught all black coaches. And we got the plane and we went to a restaurant to, to have our pregame meal. And the meal, um, they served us um, at different tables, the milk was already on the table. They had juice and different things because we got there earlier, so it was kind of like a late breakfast, brunch type meal. And uh, most of the milk was spoiled. Uh, and then we found everybody at different tables was finding eggshells in the eggs. So coach had everybody put their forks down and everything. And we left, food on the table, just left. We left and went and got some fast food. And, and I remember thinking like, initially it was an accident. Like, I, I mean, just, but then as I think I like, hold up. You, you wouldn't serve all that, that many tables for milk on accident. You wouldn't have that many eggshells and plates on accident. Maybe a couple plates, but like almost every other table, you know, eggshells and spoiled milk, you know. And then that was the first time in my life we came out. And I remember we got into the stadium and we were warming up and then we were coming back out, get ready for kickoff. And that was the first time we were in a little tunnel and their fans were leaning over. And that was the first time that I had, and I was, baffled that uh, there were whites yelling at us and calling us the N-words. And I was like, is this a movie? Like, I, 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 it, it just blew my mind, you know. Uh, they threw stuff at us. And um, I'm not one to be a, a sore loser. Uh, we lost by one point in that game. But there were things that happened in that game to where after the game, I bawled crying because that was the first time that I felt so cheated. There was so many overt things that happened in that game to where I was like, they cheated, like they cheated. And it was, I mean, so many things, not just one call, not just a few. It was one, I did a spin move and I broke and it was gonna be a seven yard touchdown and they said my knee touched the ground, my knee did not touch the ground. I, I could go call after call, yeah. you know. Uh, they kicked our quarterback out first quarter and he signed the Texas Tech. We had a great quarterback. They kicked him out first quarter because they said he threw an illegal elbow. Kicked him out. No warning, no anything. Tossed him. You know, they tried to arrest one of our coaches, said he shouldn't have been on the sideline. I mean, it, it, was, it, it was thing after thing after thing. And even at the end of the game, the last call, it, it was crazy. And I left and I was like, okay, that was, a, that was a rude awakening for the reality. I remember my teenage years were, you know, and I said, I, I was an honor student. I was an athlete, but I was an honor student. My friends are hung with, we, we pretty much, we athletes are honor students. One of them is a federal agent now. And I remember, you know, we go to the, I remember one of our first times we were at the mall and they dispersed us because, you know, for black guys in a particular mall, we couldn't walk around the mall. You know, we had to they leave. Dispersed? They kicked you out? They kicked, they, they like, either we got to split up or we have to leave. And it's like, we've never, we've never hurt anybody. We, we haven't stolen anything. Like, 
what are you what are you saying you know and we so i remember that experience and i was thinking about my dad and my aunts saying certain things and then um, being able driving through certain parts of dallas you couldn't drive through more than two blacks in the car if it was if it was three or four black teenagers you get pulled over you get set out there search the car and then when they didn't find anything have a good day no no cause no why we pulled out nothing you know and i remember so starting to have those experiences i started to think back in the past and i was like you know we've we've come a long way but man like really you know those types of things and uh now it didn't jade my view for the blue you know because i had family members in law enforcement so i knew i, I knew all law enforcement's not bad you know uh but it let me see and, and, and peek i got to peek it behind the curtain that there are bad people you know, serving in certain sectors. Can you share the story of when you were at Duke? Were you a college student then? No. Um, you know, I went to school at Carolina. My dad had been diagnosed with um, heart issues, um, blocked arteries. So he was having a quadruple bypass surgery at Duke Medical Center. So while he was at Duke Medical Center, I was up there visiting him while before the surgery and after the surgery and all of that. And so while he'd be resting, I decided to go over to Duke's Divinity School. And I was going to, I was investigating whether I would pursue a PhD in New Testament. So I was walking on campus back and forth to the hospital. And so one day I was on my way back to the hospital and I was picked up by the campus police. And the campus police uh, said they were picking me up because I was under suspicion of peeping into the dorm rooms, the women's dorm room. So I didn't even know where the women's dorm was. And so they described, when they got to the, um, the holding station where they have a little campus police substation on campus, they described the guys being like five feet eight, five feet nine, <laughs> you know, uh, with uh, a beard or a mustache. I didn't have a beard at that time. But whatever the description of the guy was, it looked nothing like me. I mean, I'm obviously I'm 6'3". But it was one of those situations where just being black uh, meant that I fit the description. I left the law school late because I had to study for a test, an exam. And I lived in, I was living with a cousin in Sunrise. I drove up the Palmetto. I noticed cars following me, cop car following me, but I just, let it go because it's a highway. And I kept driving, driving, I got on 75. Um, and back then, there wasn't a lot of traffic over that area because everything wasn't built up. So 75, there was no, there was no west of 75. So I used that route to get up to Sunrise. I wasn't really paying attention. I was listening, probably listening to music. And I pulled up in front of my cousin's house. As soon as I pulled up in front of my cousin's house, I couldn't see. There were so many lights on me in the car, I didn't know what was going on. And I was startled, because if you're relaxed at that point, you, you know, you saw the cop a long time ago, I'm, on, I'm just startled. And they're, they're on their bullhorn telling me, get out of the car. And I'm like, what's, what's going on? So I get out the car, and back then I had a fanny pack, you know, and I had everything in there. Um, and where are you coming from? Who are you? And I'm trying to explain, I, I live there, but I can't see anyone. Because there's so much lights on me, you don't see the person's talking to you because you're blind. And uh, I'm like, I, I just left University of Miami Law School. I was studying. Show me proof. I'm like, all right, it's in my fanny pack. 
move very slowly and put your hand in your fanny pack. So I moved very slowly and pulled it out. And I'm saying, I'm getting my wallet out and I'm pulling out my license, I'm pulling out my school ID, but then I see the guns. I counted the guns. There were five guns pointing at me and I'm just standing there scared. And I had to wait for whatever they were doing with my license. And of course, I'm hoping that my cousin would see me out, you know, come out of the house. But it's two o'clock in the morning, they're not gonna come out of the house. And at that point, I'm shivering so much as an adult male with kids, my brain is saying, I'm not gonna see my wife or my daughter ever again. So he comes over to me and, he, and then two of the lights went off and they said, um, I'm sorry, you're, it was a mistake. And they packed up and left. I went in the house, everyone was sleeping. I bawled my eyes out on my bed. Um, I couldn't sleep. I was supposed to have an exam that next day. Um, I, I, so I was, I, I was just lost to words. I, I couldn't sleep. I went to school that next day and I looked for my professor, a white professor. And I, I went to him and I said, um, I need to talk to you. You know, I'm here in my first year of law school and I've been pulled over twice and this happened to me last night. Um, and he says, hey, let me tell you something. What I want you to do, I want you to go and purchase one of those uh, square yellow um, um, baby. baby on board stickers to put on the back of your window. I'm like, what? He said, trust me, go get one of those things and stick it on the back of your window. They probably won't pull you over because they're going to see you as a black man um, who is a family man. I'm like, seriously? Of course I did it. But my anger at that point was already, I, I was angry. I was angry for the entire year because I'm like, here I am, I finally got to the position in my life that I'm going to law school and I'm making my parents proud. My wife is proud of me. And, and, and this is what I'm still going through this? When does it end? Then the following year, it's all over the news. The, you know, there was a, a kid at University of Miami Law School that were able to steal some of the students' files and determined that um, the largest black um, student body group that went in the year I went in and that they uh, should never have let us in under the affirmative action um, provision that um, University of Miami is lowering their standard to allow us to come into the school. And it made national news um, and we protested, we, there was, we sat out, we weren't gonna go to class. And it's happening right around the same time O.J. Simpson's trial's going on. And Rodney King just happened, you know, a, little, uh, a year before that. And that trial was about to start. And so black people were angry. And I am an older student, because I went to law school when I was older. I, was, I, I, I took time off before um, I worked and then I went to law school. So I'm seeing these young, students the same age as my daughter and my son who just had the passion to try and break that system and i'm like this should not be happening and that was in the early 90s should not be happening the people in the car was just me my black friend and my, my white female friend and i was driving out of a parking garage to pick up my other two friends and five cop cars pulled me over and they came rushing to the car with flashlights and their hands on their holsters. So instantly I was scared, sweating. And it was just, I, I didn't even know, I, I didn't even know they were pulling me over because I didn't do anything. Like I was just so scared. It's like, why is this happening right now? I, and it was already a bad night. 
So I was already, I was like, okay. So they came over and they're just asking me, have I been wearing that shirt all day? And I'm like, yes, I've been wearing this shirt all day. It's like, you haven't changed your clothes. I'm like, no, I haven't changed my clothes. And one of the cops was just walking around my car with his flashlight looking everywhere. And I was so confused and I still don't know why I got pulled over. But then the cop stopped asking me questions and he told me to put my back window down and start asking my white friends, my white friend questions. And she was just answering, yeah, I was just gonna pick up her friends. And it seemed like it was just a different, her, her like way of answering was like happy and it was just easy for her. But me, I was so scared and so anxious. And like, I feel like she, I was happy that she was there, honestly, because it went really well. They let us go after they talked to her. And then I went and picked up my friends and then I went home and, and I, I kind of cried that night. I know police officers, I have family members that are police officers, friends that are police officers. My tribe leader was a cop. I don't know, like I get a, an anxiety when I see flickering lights, just red and blue lights. Why am I scared? I don't want to have to go through life scared. George Floyd. A couple days after that, you and I spent some time together talking about it. Can you just share with me, what, what was that like for you? Yeah, the first time I saw that, I would say the first two times I saw the actual video, I've never had an experience like it. And what I've told people, I'm not a person that cries very easily. Um, but that particular video um, really brought me to tears. It was just that visceral. Um, and it wasn't anger that I, it was just the pain of it to see a human being on the television screen who is alive and actually begging for their life. I mean, this person, it wasn't like he was fighting back or cursing anybody out. He's just saying, could you please remove your knee? I can't, I can't breathe, you know? And I think at some point he says, you're going to kill me. But to see that, I mean, oh my God, it, it's, it's unbelievable. You have um, ties through some friends too. Yeah. George, yeah. Yeah. personally. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me about that. Yeah. One of my really good friends, very close friend of mine, we served in ministry together. Dynamic, faithful preacher of the word. Um, he lives in Oklahoma, has a business he runs in Oklahoma. And uh, but he grew up in Houston, Texas with George, grew up playing football with George, uh, continued to be friends with George. And uh, we've been exposed to some of George's rap sheets and his history coming up. And uh, decisions, bad decisions he made, um, evils that he has done that in his past. Uh, at the same time, I will say, and I hope you know people are listening, um, through all of that, and we understand who, we who know the gospel, understand the gospel, he, he was at a point in his life too where he was wrestling with, you know, he was a professing Christian and he was trying to get his life right. Uh, I saw one of the last text messages that he sent one of my friend um, that's in uh, Oklahoma that he was saying you know, he's trying to get his life right under Christ. He's, he's, he, he hadn't left his faith in Jesus and he really wants to get things right for his family and his daughter, you know? Mm -hmm. and, 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 and so to see that and to see how things ended up, um, you know, was heartbreaking. Um, 
am I making any excuses for any of his rap sheet? No. How things went down on that street, shouldn't be. His actions didn't deserve the type of death that he received. None of us can appreciate another's life experiences if we do not have the courage to stop and listen. But when we do, that by itself can start the healing process. The relationship between our law enforcement and our black brothers and sisters is only one piece of the discussion. The conversation for liberty and justice for all is much, much broader than that. But that one dimension is where the spotlight is in our society right now. It is hard to appreciate what's happening today if we do not appreciate where we have been. This is not an issue that we are stumbling upon in our generation. There's a historical narrative here. So while we're sorting through our current realities, we are also inheriting a dynamic. It's something that we must unpack if we're going to walk through this together. Everyone knows as an African-American, my history is a slave history. So if my ancestors tried to run away to get a freedom that's etched into the Declaration of Independence and Constitution, it's there, it's written down. They tried to achieve that. Suppose they ran across a policeman if they, ran, if, they, if they escaped from the plantation. Suppose they were free. Suppose they were free. But the plantation owner said, no, he's not. That's my slave. Tells the policeman. What do you think the policeman's going to do? Suppose um, he's a slave and somebody who's white accuses him of something that he doesn't do. What's the policeman going to do? Suppose he's just walking, carrying out the responsi uh, responsibility of task that his owner has given him. And somebody comes up and accuses him of stealing a chicken. What is the police going to do? So that's, in the, that's in the slavery context. So let's jump to ab um, emancipation. I'm not a slave anymore. I've been set free. It's 1865. I don't have any land. I don't have any money. I don't have any property. I, haven't, I don't have any education. I have no one who knows me as a human being in any of the systems, educational system, med medical system, uh, business system. So I'm just in town. A woman says he is harassing me or he assaulted me. What is the police going to do? Well, suppose I'm innocent and I tell the police, no, sir, not me. I didn't do it. I'm just standing here on the sidewalk. What is the police going to do? This is the way most black people, particularly black people who are urban or rural, it's not just urban, but rural. Oh, rural is even worse. Some of the worst atrocities that have taken place from law enforcement, rural Florida, rural Florida. Florida has one of the worst lynching records of any, any state in the union. I think Florida actually leads the union wow. in the number of lynchings that took place in the South. Law enforcement is complicit in these lynchings. Thousands of black lives killed and no one was ever charged, arrested, or incarcerated. So, and so in the 1990s, we jumped 
we don't have to go through the 60s, you know, the, 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 the peaceful presentations, the, the protests, the peaceful protests. It was often law enforcement that instigated violence against people who were peacefully protesting. Dr. King, I mean, he didn't have a violent bone in his body. And so in terms of law enforcement, you know, what I saw with the George Floyd situation is a reminder that not individual police officers, but the institution of law enforcement has historically not protected black people to the same degree. This tension has caused tremendous pain and loss. And in modern times, we are witnessing how this is also costing the lives of police officers. Those who are called to protect and serve and do so by putting their lives on the line find themselves at even greater risk. There are extremists who want to answer death with more death. There are threats and hate directed at law enforcement officers. As we are having a family conversation, it is important that we hear how this is affecting our law enforcement families. Tell me about your neighborhood. Describe your neighborhood that you lived in. And you know, you moved around, but yeah, how did you Yeah, I moved a few times. Um, but I mean, looking back, like I've driven through there, you know, a few times, like I got this little rough area. <laughs> like, obviously I was naive to it. I didn't know, you know. I, was, I would keep to myself, man, you know. I wasn't aware of all the crime and stuff, but you kind of knew, you know, people hanging out, walking around, like, oh, these guys look a little, you know, what are they up to, you know? So I'm like, let me just stay within this area. Like, let me not roam around at night or during the daytime, just, you know, kept to ourselves a lot, you know? You said that you, you always wanted to be a cop. Yes, at one point it was, when I was younger, I was all about the military. And then later on it became, you know, to be a cop as well. But yeah, the, my main thing was the military. Then after that was, was being a cop. So why, I mean, those are two, I mean, both of those career paths, whether it's law enforcement or military, those are, it's a service, you know, they call it the service. You know, you're, it's self-sacrificing. I mean, what, what why, why those two paths? You know, being out there and, and fighting for your country and making a difference you know and the police it was I always had that heart you know to help people you know I always wanted to help those that couldn't help themselves or you know always defend the weak you know like I always had that in my heart to, to do that so that's that's what gave me the passion to become a cop so George Floyd walk me through that as a police officer how, how are you processing that <sighs> it's heavy it's heavy because, because of one man's action, we, we're paying the price for it. You know? So it's, man, you talk to any police officer, man, we're, we're ashamed, you know, we're, we're, we're broken because that's not us, you know? And I speak for the majority, everybody's in, in agreement that what he did was wrong, what he did was, was evil and he needs to he needs to pay you know for his consequences you know and and it's as difficult to see as you know we're all being painted with the same brush you know it's 
is hard. How's Julie feeling right now? Uh, she's she's taking it she's taking it hard because you know she has friends that are black. You know her husband's a cop. Like, you know she she feels for the black community. She feels for the police community. You know and you know it's like she's she's in the middle. You know what I'm saying so. But then again, you know, she's she's reaching out and praying for her friends and but she's also praying for, you know, cops and their families and loved ones. Cause, you know, some cops have lost their lives and leave behind kids and, and spouses and stuff. So, I mean, it's difficult. So I don't share as much with Julie just to not worry her, you know. So sometimes she doesn't understand what I go through every day. But lately I've trying to explain to her, like, what we go on an everyday basis, what we do out there, like what we see every day, what we feel every day. It's it's hard, man. So that's that's why you see a spike in suicides with cops, man. That's why a lot of cops turn to alcohol, you know, because it's it's heavy, man. It's heavy, you know. So it's we go through a lot every day, man. We see a lot, you know. We see a lot of crime. We see a lot of deaths. We see a lot of hurt, you know. And it's a huge burden, you know, that we see. Not every human sees that. Not every human sees that, that amount of hate and evil every day. How does having a child change as a police officer? You have a little girl. How does it change your fears, your thought processes, the, the burden? Um, I, don't, I don't like thinking about it too much. Um, you know, my daughter's at the age where she wants me to stay home. <laughs> She's like, Dad, are you going to work again today? And I'm like, yeah, Mom, I'm going to work. I'll see you tomorrow morning, though. Because, you know, I usually work during the nights. Have I thought, like, you know, maybe one day I'll die? Of course, man, but I don't like thinking about that, you know? God has a purpose for my life, and <laughs> when my time comes, my time will come. Unfortunately, you know, if it's before, you know, my daughter's, you know, young and... You know, it's sad, of course, but I don't want to think about that, man. You know, I go out there and do my job the best I can and, you know, honoring God as I do my work and and come home safely. You know, one of my, one of my really close friends, his daughter's graduating this year and and she came home and just hugged him and embraced him. And she's, you know, she knows her father. <laughs> But it's like, she's like, Daddy, I see everything they're, they're writing about you guys. You know, all my friends and stuff. And it's terrible, man, because, you know, she, she knows her father, you know. Sorry, man. <laughs> so anyways, um, so it's, it's like, man, like, now my daughter has to, feel, you know, see this. And now her friends are all saying this. And, but her friends have known her father. We're having a house built um, in uh, Silver Lakes, and uh, Silver Lakes has sub-communities within it, within it. So we were renting in a, a sub, you know, one of the smaller sub-communities within Silver Lakes uh, while our house was being built, probably like a quarter mile away from, from where our house was being built. So finally, we closed, we're all excited. About eight months later since we were here, and uh, Natalie wants to get the 
her new nest feathered or whatever. So I get the big U-Haul and I'm moving all of our stuff from our rental to our brand new house. And um, it was around midnight, after midnight, and I got this big U-Haul and I'm driving in, dumping off, coming out, going back to the rental. And then all of a sudden, I'm coming out and then the lights go, woo, you know, cop. And I'm like, man. And I just stopped as I pulled over to the side and I just said, I wonder how this looks. In a U-Haul after midnight going into, you know, brand new um, subdivision, probably not a good look. I mean, if I was looking at it, you know. So anyway, the officer comes over and we have our discussion, story checks out. Um, and I could tell that it was an uncomfortable conversation for the officer. But I remember saying to the officer, can I tell you something? And the officer goes, yes, sir. And I said, um, I want you to know that, uh, you know, I appreciate what you, what you did. You know, how you handled yourself. It wasn't a negative, you know, what are you doing here? You can't, you know, you don't belong here type of thing. But every but person was, 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 uh, was uh, considerate tone and all that kind of stuff. So anyway, so I said, I thank you. I said, you know what? Um, I appreciated what you, what you did um, and didn't let race negate you from doing what even I would say, yeah, maybe it did need to get checked out. You know, uh, I said what would have made me probably not, you know, feel bad is if this was someone doing something nefarious and because you were, well, this may be looked at racial profiling, so I'm not going to stop. And then if I would have come home, maybe from vacation, and found that my place was ripped off and that was the guy that did it, and just because you, well, baby, how does this, and you didn't do it. So I appreciate you doing your job and doing it in a respectful manner. And that was, I left and the police officer left. Every time we gather as a church, a miracle is happening. Men, women, and children of all different backgrounds are coming together. There's a beautiful diversity economically, politically, culturally, and ethnically. What could possibly weave us with all of our differences together? We gather around one single being. We are drawn to one person, Jesus Christ. Revelation 7 says, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. When we come together as a church, it's a preview of heaven. 
We are seeing the first fruits of eternity. In the meantime, how do we find unity amidst the diversity? We must learn each other's stories. It starts with a conversation. If you really want to know us, come, come talk to us, get to know us. Come know who we are, you know? Know our hearts. Talk. Let, let, let's, let's talk, let's heal. What is it gonna take for our, our culture, our city, our nation, to have a, a society that reflects the justice and righteousness called for in scripture. You can have all this nice churchy every, every day, every week, but until we sit down and really have the real conversations about what people are really feeling, not gonna happen, not gonna change. Cause you're gonna go back in your car to your, to your neighborhood or to your house with the same preconceived notions. Let's listen to one another. Um, because sometimes and when our emotions are heightened, we have to regather ourselves and we need to really listen and take an honest list and, and to be able to decipher between some of the, the, the misinformation, the misunderstanding. Um, sometimes the narratives get shifted and you, you, you run off with a position and you've missed the, the, the point, you know. Um, and then some people that are making points may not always make the point well. But let's, let's evaluate the point, you know, like, let's evaluate the issue. It's, it's, it's possible to have an impediment when it comes to loving your neighbor as you love yourself. Because in order, the only way to really love yourself adequately is to have a, an understanding of who you are um, and to be able to accept who you are. You can never love yourself if you can't accept yourself, you know. And you can never love another person if you can't accept another person, but also a part of loving other people is understanding them. Not understanding them as I would wish them to be, but understanding them as they really are. Just a moment in the sacred Oppression has to cease What is broken finds redemption What is shackled finds release Your presence can heal me So as we gather around our Savior, how do we manage our differences? How do we understand each other's life experiences? How do we show empathy for each other's challenges? How do we advocate for each other's disadvantages? How do we know when to weep with each other and when to rejoice with each other? How do we get to a place where we shock our community with a love for each other so robust it can only be described as otherworldly? If we're going to perpetuate the miracle of our diversity, we must have a culture of dialogue. There's so much to be done, so much that we as a church must engage in so we can see justice in our city. But for starters, 
we must hone the skill of seeking to understand each other as brothers and sisters do. There's a miracle of unity that happens here. It happens because Jesus is at the center. Christ had many, had many missions, but probably his chief one is reconciliation. That's his message. He came to reconcile the loss to himself. So reconcile. We, 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 we need to be reconcilers, understanding that the world that we're in is broken and we all have that disease of sin. And where we are right now is to make sure that we don't allow hate to seep into our hearts. Where we're, we're picking sides, you know, let's, 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 we're on the Lord's side. You know, the Lord is not picking sides. He's on His side and He's calling for us to be on His side. And so we have to check and make sure we don't allow hate in our hearts. So for my, my, my black brothers and sisters, don't allow hate in your heart or become jaded and callous. Um, for my blue brothers and sisters in Christ, don't allow hate and callousness to take your heart. And then for my white brothers and sisters in Christ, don't let hate fuel to say, well, it's us against them and I'm going to choose my side. And, and it's, it's, it really don't allow that to, to, to seep into your heart because it will manifest and it can manifest in so many different ways. Um, so that's one of the things that I really champion is that to, to, to make sure that our, we keep our hearts pure, that we keep our, our focus on Jesus through um, this situation and the unrest that we're, we're experiencing in our country. If you had one message for your Christian brothers and sisters who are black, one message for those brothers and sisters who are white, and one message for those brothers and sisters who are in law enforcement. Okay, so just make sure, um, so all of these are brothers and sisters in Christ. So I have one message, not three. But I have one, I have, I have one message, not, 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 not three separate, okay. And that is Christ. In John 13, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. In the midst of so much pain and confusion in our world, the church is to be a place of healing, a people that lead reconciliation, a family that rejoices with those who rejoice and mourns with those who mourn. That's what we want to be, a place known by its love. So our first step is to listen. Thanks for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, you can email us at podcast at cityrev.org.